Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Hey there, folks. Norm here. Excited to give you your fix of this week's bit of Drabblecast relaunch prelaunch content. But first, quick pre-episode reminder. Remember, it's our 10-year anniversary this year, and we're gearing up for a big relaunch in September with multiple things going on. And we want to keep in touch with you outside of this feed, because, well, we mostly want this feed to be about having a good time and rocking out stories, not updating with updatey stuff. So go to Drabblecast.org while you're listening to this right now and shoot in that email address of yours right there in the mailing list subscription thingy. If you're a Facebooker, we've got a pretty happening page and group. And if you're a tweeter... Well, I hear our in-house cryptozoologist Connor Chodesworth has been out there doing a little trolling lately. Follow us on Twitter at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Drabblecast Best of Director's Cut Special, Charlie the Purple Giraffe Was Acting Strangely, by David D. Levine. I really enjoyed producing this week's story back in May 2009 when we first ran it as episode 113, but I might have enjoyed it even more this go-round, getting to talk with the author himself, the one and only David D. Levine. You might remember from last week how we do this. We're going to run the full story uncut here in a minute for you folks that haven't heard it or maybe want to relive the zany, madcap, existential horror of it all. And then minute 22 of the episode, we'll begin with part two, where David and I will talk about it with, well, no spoilers, but we go all over the place. So let's get going. Originally airing on May 6th, 2009, we bring you Charlie the Purple Giraffe Was Acting Strangely by David D. Levine. Jerry the Orange Squirrel was walking down the sidewalk one day when he saw some word balloons floating above the hedge beside him. It was the voice of his friend Charlie, the Purple Giraffe. A man has to have a proper garden, doesn't he? Charlie was saying. And what makes a proper garden? Proper plants. And what do you need for proper plants? After each question, Charlie seemed to be waiting for an answer, but no response was visible. You need proper dirt, Charlie continued. And what do you have to have for proper dirt? Intrigued, Jerry scampered to the top of the hedge and stared down. What he saw made the little lines of surprise come out of his head. You need proper worms. Bent double, Charlie was busily tying a Windsor knot around the neck of a common garden worm. 
Beside him, a large tin can, its ragged-edged lid tilting at a rakish angle, squirmed with hundreds of worms in tiny top hats, spats, and bustles. It wasn't the worms that surprised Jerry, though. Charlie did that sort of thing all the time. It was the fact that Charlie was speaking into thin air. Who are you talking to, Charlie? said Jerry. Charlie was so startled that his eyes momentarily jumped out of his head. But he quickly regained his composure. Uh, the worms? Worms don't have ears, Charlie. I was talking to you, Jerry. Yeah, you didn't even know I was here. Sure I did. I was just pretending I didn't. Uh-huh. Jerry's words dripped frost. One linen-clad worm raised a parasol against the drips. As a matter of fact, I was just about to invite you in for tea. Care to join me? Yeah, we can have a nice little chat. They walked from the yard into Charlie's cozy one-room bungalow. It was pink today, with cheerful curves to its walls and roof, and was surrounded by smiling purple flowers. The entire interior was wallpapered in blue and yellow stripes, which clashed with the green and black stripes of Charlie's suit. Charlie poured tea for the two of them, holding the tiny teapot delicately between white-gloved finger and thumb. A musical note came from the pot as he set it down. He seated himself and raised his cup, pinky raised, though he did not drink, for his arms were too short to reach his head. What brings you out on this fine morning? He asked. His words were sprinkled with rainbows and candy canes. Jerry sipped his tea for a moment. Charlie, you have to admit that you've been acting a little strange lately. Strange? Charlie's eyes darted to one side, then returned to Jerry. Jerry set down his cup. You've been talking to yourself. Me? Talk to myself? He slapped his knee and laughed, not very convincingly. Why should I talk to myself when you're so much more interesting than I am? I've seen you do it, like just now. I told you, I was talking to you. What about last week, when you were working on your car? I saw you from three blocks away. Every once in a while, you'd wave your wrench and pontificate. It was like you were trying to convince someone of something, but there was nobody there. I was, uh, rehearsing. I'm giving a speech to the Rotary Club next week. Jerry hopped up on the table. Charlie, there is no Rotary Club in this town. It's in, uh, another town. What other town? Charlie passed his cup from hand to hand. He stared fixedly at a point on the wall. It was as though he were staring out a window, but there wasn't even a painting there, just the wallpaper, which was now patterned in pink and white polka dots. His expression was grim, almost angry. Finally, he brought his head down to Jerry's level, cupped his glove to his mouth, and whispered, I wasn't talking to myself. Oh? Charlie peered theatrically from side to side, then leaned in even closer. I was talking to the readers. Jerry crossed his arms on his chest. There's nobody here by that name. It's not a name. It's a... It's what they do. Readers. People who read. Who read what? A change came over Charlie then, like a cloud passing in front of the sun. He placed his hands flat in his lap, straightened his neck, and took a deep breath. Us, he said at last. They read us. 
Yeah, I don't understand. Charlie stood up and began to pace, his hands tightly clenched behind his back. His strides were long, and the house was tiny. He could only take two or three steps in each direction before having to turn around. Jerry? He began, then paused. Look, do you ever ask yourself, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Share, sometimes, doesn't everyone? Charlie stopped pacing, turned suddenly, and leaned down to Jerry again. We make them laugh. His tone was deadly serious. Them? The readers. We were created to entertain them. Jerry waved his tiny paws in a broad gesture of negation. Whoa there, big guy. <laughs> Jerry the Squirrel ain't nobody's creation and nobody's petsy. I'm here for me. Sorry, Jerry, but it's the honest truth. We're just characters in a comic book. Jerry fixed Charlie with a hard, beady stare. Prove it. Charlie's eyes closed and his shoulders slumped. He turned away from Jerry. I can't. Then how do you know it's true? I've, I've always known, I think, in the back of my head somewhere. But then one day... He turned back to Jerry, and his eyes were two black pits of fear and despair. I just said goodbye to Hermione the Hedgehog. I turned to go back into my house, and then suddenly everything was black. I couldn't move. I couldn't see. I was squashed flat. But somehow I knew that all around me, piled above and below me like a huge stack of pancakes, was everyone and everything I have ever cared about. They were all squashed flat too, but, but I was the only one who knew it. That went on for a moment that seemed like forever. And then I was right back in my house as though nothing had happened. A thought balloon appeared above Jerry's head. He's bonkers. I know it sounds crazy, but it was as real as anything. And ever since then, I know we're being read and we're being laughed at. I get it, Jerry said with false cheer. When you talk to them, you're telling them jokes. No! Charlie's hands bunched into fists and he pounded the air ineffectually. I'm trying to explain myself. Jerry scratched his head and a few question marks came out. <laughs> Well, you certainly aren't doing a very good job of it now. Well, for instance, last week when I was working on my car, I was just putting the engine back in for the third time, and I was explaining to the readers that this was a very delicate operation and had to be performed with the utmost care. Not funny at all. Charlie, you were pounding it in place with a sledgehammer. That's pretty funny. And calling it a delicate operation just makes it funnier. Charlie stood stock still for a moment, his lip quivering. Then he collapsed into his chair, his purple neck arching high as he dropped his head into his hands. I know! He sobbed, big blue teardrops running down between his fingers. No matter what I do, no matter how hard I try to be serious, it comes out hilarious. And I'm tired of them laughing at me. Jerry offered his handkerchief, and Charlie blew his nose in it with an immense orange honk. These readers, can you hear them? Can you see them? No. Then how do you know they're laughing at you? I just know. Same way I know they're there. And where are they exactly? Right now, over there. Jerry followed Charlie's pointing finger, 
but there was nothing there but the green and white flowered wallpaper. At least it was prettier than the pink and white polka dots that had been there before. I don't see anything. Neither do I, but they're there. They're always there. Always? Well, most of the time. He lifted his head and tried to return the sodden handkerchief, but Jerry gestured to keep it. I don't think they watch anyone else. I mean, they're, they're watching you now because you're with me, and they might watch you for a while after you leave here, but eventually they'll come back to me. I'm the main character in their little comic book. Jerry's tail bristled. Why you? Why not me? I don't know. I wish I did. That's just the way it is, I guess. Jerry paced back and forth on the table for a time, thinking. Finally, he spoke. I think you ought to talk to Dr. Nasiris about this. Charlie shook his head, a slow, rueful motion. Okay, but I don't think it'll do any good. Dr. Nasiris's office walls were completely covered in diplomas from such institutions as the School of Aardvarks and Was Up With You. The doctor himself was a stout gray rhino, nearly as wide as he was tall, whose wire-rimmed glasses perched incongruously at the top of his head. He wore a white lab coat, and a small, round mirror was strapped to his forehead. He never used the mirror in any way. Hmm, he said, as he held his stethoscope to the side of Charlie's neck. And, hmm, again, as he stood on a stepladder to peer down Charlie's throat. And, hmm. Once more, as he held Charlie's lapel between two fingers and looked at his watch. Well, doctor, said Jerry when the exam was finished. What's wrong with them? Oh, yes, well, my examination has discovered no physical infirmities whatsoever. Superficially, he's as salubrious as an equine. What? asked Charlie. Yes, healthy as a horse explained the doctor. I told you. But he's seeing things, said Jerry. Yes, indeed. These phantasmagorical manifestations are most worrisome, the doctor muttered, puffing on his pipe. A few small pink bubbles emerged as he pondered. Yes, well, I recommend that we keep your friend under observation. How ironic, Charlie said to the wall, then returned his gaze to the doctor. I am not seeing things or hearing things. I just know things. Is that so bad? Jerry jumped up on the doctor's desk. Charlie, listen to me. I'm your friend, right? I've never steered you wrong. Of course not. Then get this through your thick purple skull. There are no readers. You are not the main character in anyone's comical book. You're just a person like anyone else, and you're here to muddle through your life the same as the rest of us. Nothing more. Yes, I'm afraid the veracity of your diminutive companion statement is incontrovertible, said the doctor, waving his pipe. These megalomaniacal misapprehensions must be immediately terminated. They jeopardize your physical integrity and the overall stability of the community. What? 
you're a danger to yourself and others. Charlie jumped out of his seat. I'm no danger to anyone. So what if I talk to myself? That doesn't mean I'm going to pick up a big mallet and start flattening people. Yes, well, solipsistic delusions are frequently merely the initial manifestation of a general insensitivity to the legitimacy, even the existence of external personalities. If allowed to go unchecked, these tendencies could escalate into antisocial or even injurious behavior. What? He thinks he might pick up a big mallet and start flattening people, said Jerry. Charlie stood with his feet planted wide and his fists clenched. The white fabric of his gloves was bunched and strained. He stared at the wall. You think this is funny, don't you? Nobody's making any jokes here, Charlie, said Jerry. We're serious. I wasn't talking to you. He turned around, pointed at a different spot on the wall. This has all been arranged for your amusement. Are you happy? Jerry and Dr. Noceris looked at each other. Charlie pulled out a big mallet from his pocket and began pounding on the wall. Are you laughing now, huh? Are you? The wham of the mallet on the wall was huge and black. Just let me get out there and I'll show you what comedy is all about. This situation necessitates immediate incarceration, said the doctor as he ran behind his desk. Ditto, said Jerry as he dived under a chair. The doctor pressed a button under the desk. No sound came out, but a few small lightning bolts appeared. Moments later, two enormous gorillas, their white coats stretched taut over bulging muscles, burst through the door. There was a swirl of motion, and when it cleared, Charlie was on the floor, trussed in a straitjacket. Don't let them put me away! Charlie cried. It's for your own good, said Jerry, and waved encouragingly as the gorillas hustled Charlie away. But as soon as they were gone, Jerry's shoulders slumped. What are you going to do, Doctor? Well, his prognosis is not encouraging. However, he will be the recipient of the most advanced experimental treatments modern technology has to offer. From his pocket, the doctor drew one end of a set of heavy jumper cables. Sparks flew from the sharp copper teeth as he touched them together, and a small, strange grin appeared on his face. Charlie's sad, desperate eyes peered through the slot in the metal door. You gotta get me out of here, Jerry. His word balloon squeezed through the slot like bubbles from a sinking ship. Hang in there, buddy. Dr. Noceris tells me that you're coming along nicely. He's been saying that for weeks. Charlie shook his head, bringing his blackened horns briefly into view. But I know the score. I'm not gonna get out of here until I show some improvement. But since there's nothing wrong with me, I'm never going to get any better than I am now. Charlie, you must accept that you have a problem. It's the first step on the road to recovery. Charlie chuckled ruefully. I have a problem, all right. I've learned there are worse things than being laughed at. Nobody's laughing at you, Charlie. You need to understand that these readers are nothing more than a projection of your own feelings of self-doubt and inconsequentiality. That's just what the rhino told you to say. But you're right. Nobody's laughing at me. The readers aren't laughing at me, and that's the problem. 
I thought you didn't want them to laugh at you. I didn't. But since I've been here in this padded cell, tied up in this straitjacket all day long with nothing to do, Jerry, they're bored. Well, that's an improvement, isn't it? Maybe now they'll watch someone else instead. They've tried, but <laughs> no insult intended. None of you guys are as funny as I am. Jerry's tail bristled. So they're leaving. They're going away completely. And that scares me. You should be glad to be rid of them, Jerry fumed. Charlie's eyes closed for a moment. When they opened again, Jerry saw a bit of the old manic fervor. Listen, do you ever think about the nature of time? What? Time. How it passes from moment to moment. Haven't you ever noticed how some things change when you aren't looking at them? Like the wallpaper? Exactly. I believe that time is divided into moments or, or segments. Within each segment, we are alive and awake, but in between there are gaps. That's when things change. What does this have to do with anything? I think the readers live their lives in the gaps between our time segments. They live in our time too, somehow, I, I know, because they can see us. But in the gaps, they have the universe to themselves. Charlie, you're not making any sense. I know it sounds crazy, but I'm dead serious. And here's the important part. When the readers aren't watching us, we don't exist. Jerry shook his head and turned away. But after a moment's thought, he turned back. Okay, suppose I accept this theory of yours. Suppose there are gaps between moments. But time still feels continuous to us, see? He waved a paw rapidly back and forth. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter, as long as they keep coming back. But if too many of them get bored, if they all go away and don't come back, then the gap will just go on and on and will never exist again. It'll be the end of the world, Jerry, squashed flat in the dark forever. Charlie's eyes were desperate, sincere, pleading. You got to get me out of here. I'll joke, I'll pratfall, I'll do anything to keep the readers coming back, to keep us all alive. Please. Jerry closed his eyes, unable to bear his friend's gaze. There are no readers, Charlie. In the end, he was right. I'm here with uh, wonderful author David D. Levine, the, the writer of the story that we're going to be listening to here. Charlie the Purple Giraffe was acting strangely. He's also uh, had other stories on the Drabblecast, such as Babel Probe um, and Floaters, which was a story we commissioned uh, for Lovecraft Month. And uh, it's about the little white things that are in your eyes whenever you close them and open them up and look at the sky. You always wonder about that. And now you know. How are you doing, David? I'm just fine. And yourself? I am great. Thanks for hanging in there while we tried to figure out audio stuff for two straight days. <laughs> I, I think we've got it now, though. We do. It sounds great. Cool. Well, uh, why don't you start off by telling us a little about uh, any new projects you've got going on, anything that you're plugging, and uh, then we'll jump into this story, which is awesome. Well, the big news in the last couple of years is uh, my first novel came out in 2016. Uh, Arabella of Mars is what I call a Regency interplanetary airship adventure. Uh, it was written as YA, 
but seems to have uh, seems to have both YA and adult crossover appeal. Um, it was uh, I call it a, I, you, you I I sensed I sensed a question on your lips when I said Regency interplanetary airship adventure. <laughs> Absolutely yes. Can you expound? Uh, well, it's it takes place during the English Regency, uh, beginning in 1812. Um, it is an interplanetary airship adventure because it takes place in an alternate universe in which the sky is full of air and the uh, other planets of the solar system were colonized by the European powers in the 16 and 1700s. Hmm. So, so this story opens with Arabella uh, being uh, a young woman being raised on a, on a uh, a plantation on a on an English colony on Mars, and uh, she is growing up as a wild child. She's she's going native, and her mother doesn't like this and hauls her back to Earth, but she hates it on Earth. And when she finds out that her father has died back on Mars, leaving her older brother in charge of the estate, and her evil cousin is going to travel to Mars to kill the brother and take over the estate, uh, she has no choice but to disguise herself as a boy and join the crew of an interplanetary freighter in order to try to beat her cousin back to Mars and save the, uh, save the family and her brother. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Your stories are always so full of ideas and just like all sorts of just neat things. The characters are always fantastic, but there was one that I remember reading on a skate pod a while back um, that had a ship, um, the sentient ship, I believe. Uh, and I can't remember much more than that, but it was like a, it was like a hawk of some sort. It was gold. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Oh, the tale of the golden eagle. Yes. Tale of the golden eagle. That thing blew yes. my mind. Um, you just yeah, you were born with a brain up there, buddy. That thing works really well as far as coming up with ideas. For do you, do you um find yourself circling around SF more than anything, or is there a certain type of genre that you really like to dig in the most? Oh, SF definitely. I have written um, more conventional fantasy. Uh, I definitely would describe myself as a science fiction and fantasy writer. I mean, Charlie the Purple Giraffe is obviously a fantasy rather than science fiction, mm -hmm. but I'd say that like three quarters of my ideas and something like that of my published stories are science fiction rather than fantasy. Hmm. I consider science fiction to be a subgenre of fantasy, to be clear. But um, I think most people who read the genres understand what science fiction is and what's fantasy, and they know it when they see it. I really do believe that um, they have a lot in common. The, the analogy that I use is, have you ever been to Disneyland? And there's two rides at Disneyland. One's called Astro Orbiter, and the other's called Dumbo the Flying Elephant. <laughs> Yes. And they're, they're the same ride, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, one has these rocket ships that go around and up and down. The other one has elephants that go around and up and down. They're the same ride with different decor. And that, to me, is the difference between science fiction and fantasy, which is not to say that they don't bring different things to the table. But I think if you look fundamentally at the basis that it's just the same idea of stories that take place in a different time and place, just which particular kind of time and place we're talking about. I don't think people always even know what they're writing. Uh, really? One of the first, yeah, one of the first stories I had published was called Nucleon, um, and I thought it was a hard science fiction story about alternate universes because it was about this guy who finds an atomic-powered car in a junkyard. Hmm. I mean, this is a car that was designed, uh, or at least. Uh, proposed back in the 50s, but never built. And he actually finds one. He finds this wrecked atomic-powered car. So I thought of it as a hard SF story about alternate universes, but it really bears more in common with the um, the magical shop genre of fantasy stories. 
Uh, and actually, that's exactly what Stan Schmidt said. I sent it to Analog, and he said, this is a great story, but I can't publish it in Analog. Uh, but it is indeed a fantasy story. And when it did get published, it wound up being the first story I had that was published in a year's best, and it was a year's best fantasy. So we don't always even know what it is. At least I didn't back then. I would probably, I would probably recognize more quickly what's actually going on today. Hmm. You consider uh, Charlie, as you said, a, uh, a fantasy, clearly, and um, of an existential nature, really. Um, were you going through something tough when you were writing this story, or where did this come from, this whole uh, you know, realization that you might be watched, you might be making people laugh, and how deep that gets? Well, Charlie is me. I mean, mm. honestly, I'm a, I'm a ham. I, I will do I will do anything for a laugh, um, and I will do anything to get people's attention. But at the same time, I'm afraid that people are not laughing with me, but laughing at me. Um, and so sometimes I sometimes I would just like to to go away and hide and be by myself. But if nobody's watching me, if nobody's laughing at me, do I even really exist? So Charlie's existential crisis is really mine. But I wasn't I wasn't going through anything particularly difficult in my life at that time. Um, it was really just these are the kinds of things I think about all the time. Uh, I, I can't recommend the inside of my head as a tourist destination, but I live here. Do, do you think writers in general sometimes experience that too? The, the worlds that they're building that don't have human beings inhabiting them that are made up? And do, do people read these books and you, know, you kind of live in a bubble the same way I guess that a podcaster does? Like I have no idea. We might be two insane men like yelling out into the wilderness right now <laughs> for all we know. But you know, at the same time, it does feel like you're hoping to be watched by, by someone, you know? Yeah, I often think about late night DJs. <laughs> yes. You know, the people who are out there at, at two or three in the morning talking into a microphone and and really have no idea whether anybody is listening at all at that hour. And that is why I think a lot of people just can't stop themselves reading the reviews, uh, no matter how painful it can be sometimes to read reviews of your work, is, uh, is you, you read the review because if somebody took the time to review it, that means that they not only read it, but that they actually were affected by it in some way. Which means you exist. You know, <laughs> absolutely. That, <laughs> that is the thing, and that they exist. And one of the freaky things about this story, and then we'll just jump into it, is that um, it's not just Charlie that goes away, as we find out. You know, it's it's the readership to some degree, and it, the burden of of that would be immense. I imagine to anybody to to have to play it up to the gallery as much as you can for the fate of the universe, so to speak. You know, as it were, yeah. 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 And of course, Charlie is the star of his show. And one of his difficulties is convincing the other uh, the other the other people in his universe that he's more important than they are. He doesn't particularly want to be. He just is. It's a good thing. I mean, Charlie's a pretty funny guy. I could I could see myself watching that comic, but uh, he's lucky he's not like in Dagwood or Family Circus or something, because those guys have a real steep hill to climb to entertain me, at least. Yeah, it's the thing is, is that it is. The story is a tragedy, although it takes place in a comic book um, that, that it's not – it's – the universe is all about jokes. You know, They are funny to the observer, but it's not necessarily funny to be in that situation. Um, and I think a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the interest in the story comes from the tension between performing humor and actually enjoying what you're doing. 
Absolutely. That that's I, I realized that about halfway through reading it the first time. Um, obviously, I had a bunch of uh, my my brain was just filled with cool music from the fifties and and fun slapsticky sound effects I could throw out all over the place. And then I realized that oh yeah, you need to keep those in here. But it's for a, it's it's because it's juxtaposed with a darker thing kind of going on. You know, he lives yeah. in this universe where those sounds are normal, but at the same time, he's uh, he's realizing that there's bigger things going on beyond him, and, and he's the insane person. Nobody will believe him. So I, I always love having fun with slapsticky stuff and breaking pencils and, and breaking things around the house in order to make them sound like whoop, 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 kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, it was. And you nailed, you actually read Charlie yourself. And, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, he's he is you and you did a fantastic job doing it. So it was just, it was just kind of fun. I love to perform this story. I do all the voices, but this this full cast audio with the sound effects and music is just amazing. Yeah, I think I ripped the – I listened to your version or you sent it to me first, and I heard uh, the squirrel's accent kind of as like a little bit of a sneezy Brooklyn kind of thing, and I think I ripped that off. But I just love doing that one in general. Charlie, you already, nobody's looking at you, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, you definitely you definitely did the same thing with that character that I did, but the uh the doctor, Dr. Noceris is a completely different interpretation on the character. Well, it's just really stuffy. I mean, he's a rhinoceros, you know, can't can imagine yes. that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> cool, let's dive right in here. We got Charlie okay. the uh, Purple Giraffe. We ran this in May of 2009, uh just around the corner. It was episode 113 and it was something that you fans requested us talk about. So enjoy. Jerry the Orange Squirrel was walking down the sidewalk one day when he saw some word balloons floating above the hedge beside him. It was the voice of his friend Charlie, the Purple Giraffe. A man has to have a proper garden, doesn't he? Charlie was saying. And what makes a proper garden? Proper plants. And what do you need for Now here I'd plants? like to point out something, uh, a difference between my original concept of the, of the story and how it actually played out. Um, the first draft of the story, the feedback that I got was that it wasn't clear exactly where they were. Was it a comic strip, a comic book, or a cartoon? Um, and I realized that it wasn't clear, and, I hadn't, and, and so I actually nailed it down in the final draft of the story that it is explicitly a newspaper paper comic strip or possibly a comic book with speech balloons and so the characters can actually see each other's words over their heads um what you've done in the audio here is you've made it sound more like a more like an animated cartoon which is you know paradoxically exactly the right thing to do to translate a a, a a drawn cartoon into an audio format is to make it more visual but um yeah that yeah. is meta right there because it's still two-dimensional if it's a audio slash if you're watching it on a children's cartoon show you're looking yeah. at a two-dimensional world that is playing out in their own three-dimensional view even though they are in a sense two-dimensional like the sound of a balloon popping would would break that two-dimensional comic strip world yeah it's an extremely it's it's an extremely visual story which had to be translated into an entirely different video audio language in order to carry as an audio. Absolutely. Care to join me? Yeah, we can have a nice little chat. They walked from the yard into Charlie's cozy one-room bungalow. It was pink today, with cheerful curves to its walls and roof, and was surrounded by smiling purple flowers. The entire interior was wallpapered in blue. This was another thing that I changed between the first and second draft is in the first draft, 
I just made the descriptions of the backgrounds deliberately inconsistent because that's that's part of life in a in a one of the one of the things that's happening with with Charlie is Charlie notices that time does not behave the way he thinks it does. In Charlie's universe, time is not continuous. It's divided into panels. Um, and this reflects something that I've often thought myself is how do we even know that time is continuous? Heck, how do we even know that time flows in a past to future direction? There is actually nothing in physics that tells us that time has to flow forward. So our perception of time is going forward is possibly merely a psychological factor because time's arrow could equally well run in both directions. And also time could be quantized. We could live in a world with um, – with uh, a temporal pixels or a world with a sampling frequency of you know how many thousand kilohertz and we would never know it because just like the flickering images of a, of a motion picture we perceive it as being continuous so the real world itself could be a series of disconnected images and in the case of Charlie's world Charlie's world is is extremely disconnected things can change completely from one panel to another but they perceive time as being continuous and so in order to portray that uh, that continuity of panels, I had the background descriptions be deliberately inconsistent. And a lot of readers didn't get that in the first draft. So in the second draft, I played up, I said, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the wallpaper was pink with purple flowers now, which was prettier than the, than, than the blue with green stripes that it had been before. So, so I, I really forward something that was only, uh, only suggested in the earlier drafts. Wow, that's that's crazy. Because if you think about, um, like you were saying, there is almost it brings an idea of meaning and uh, comic strips to some degree, and varying per comic, which which comic you're reading, uh, have a sense of meaning or trajectory from the beginning to the end. Oftentimes, unless you're like the Far Side or something, you know, where that's the universe. That a they single live panel, in. yeah, yeah. And then other comics have like there's a point A to point B for that strip on that Sunday, and it leads in sometimes to the next strip, and the, there's this fabrication, a, a tapestry of meaning that these creatures or individuals would be imagining themselves to live within. Um, and if you think about like a four dimensional like being of some sort, looking down at how we are right now, I wonder how much less or more complex it would be than that for us, you know, in, in their view, they must be blown away by the simpleness and the strangeness of, of us being X amount of wavelength and only able to see and do these things and to think of time so linearly. Yeah. And at the same time, um, the flow of time in a paneled comic strip is something that a lot of very smart people have put a lot of thought into. Uh, everybody, everybody listening to this should pick up a copy of Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, uh, which talks about the relationship between comic art uh, sequential art, as he calls it, and uh, and the real world, because the flow of time from left to right, obviously a comic designed for a culture that reads right to left, is going to look very different. And there are some big problems in translating Japanese comics for the American market because the panels work differently depending on whether you uh, look across them from right to left or left to right, even independent of whether or not you're reading text. Um, there, I was just reading something about a um, an attempt to explain how dangerous uh, nuclear waste is in a way that will survive for thousands of years. And somebody tried drawing a comic of somebody touching the nuclear stuff and then turning into a skeleton. And somebody else pointed out that if the culture that receives this information reads from right to left, they'll think, oh, this is great stuff. It'll bring people – it'll bring dead people back to life. <laughs> wow.
And then even within a panel, there is still a flow of time from left to right, despite mm -hmm. the fact that the panel nominally represents a single instant. This is something that, that uh, good comic artists pay a lot of attention to. Absolutely. It's like the real fundamental idea of existential nihilism being that we're insignificant, pointless, but we're compelled to create meaning. And what you're describing there, the ultimate horror of, of just uh, Nietzsche, uh, would be that, that the family circus. Those one panels uh, that they do sometimes where Johnny or whatever his name is has got to go to the store to get milk, and he ends up going on a big loopy trail all over the playground, all over the schoolyard, and the panel is just one big panel, and the joke is, look how much time he's wasting, look how pointless his life is trying to get these other things just to get this this milk, which he always forgets in the end. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty dark place to, to think of our lives. <laughs> oh, the family circus is absolutely existential horror. Yeah. And really, Charlie, the story of Charlie the Purple Giraffe is a horror story. It certainly is a horror story for Charlie. I get it. Yeah. Jerry said with false cheer. When you talk to them, you're telling them jokes. No! Charlie's hands bunched into fists, and he pounded the air ineffectually. I'm trying to explain myself. Now this is, you know, this this moment here just happens to be where Charlie really, really represents me. Because I am... I am reflexively funny. I will tell jokes even when I'm not trying to. So there have been times – I spend a lot of time trying to help people understand what the heck is going on inside my head because it's extremely strange. And even when I'm not trying – even when I'm not trying to be funny, people laugh. And that can be – Sometimes I can go, okay, fine. You know, they're laughing. That's good. And sometimes when I am being my most serious, that's when people laugh the hardest. And that is, that is, is not just me and it's not just Charlie. This is the essence of comedy because the comedy that is the most true and the most funny is that which hews the most closely to reality and really impinges upon the sadness of life. Uh, Charlie Chaplin knew that. Mel Brooks knew that. Uh, 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 George Carlin definitely knows that. There's an awful lot of places where we laugh because if we don't laugh, we'll cry. And that is literally the essence of comedy. Wow. Yeah, and, and imagine existing in a world like Charlie does, where um, those those points are pointed out to you by quack quack, like a sound that indicates something is happening here that you should feel like humor or whatnot to keep yourself from crying, or a bark like a tuba. Yeah, the ability to hear the background music, I think, would be a very useful superpower. I think Deadpool has it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they watch anyone else. Uh, I mean, they're, they're watching you now because you're with me, and they might watch you for a while after you leave here, but eventually they'll come back to me. I'm the main character in their little comic book. Yeah, it's so narcissistic personality disorder, like such a big piece of uh, megalomania and the kind of delusions that somebody who's like, they're watching me, would have. But, but those people, if they were right, then it changes everything. Yeah, yeah. In this case, Charlie absolutely sounds like a, a like a delusional megalomaniac, but in his case, it's true. He really is the main character of this story. And knowing this doesn't help him. And furthermore, knowing that knowing this doesn't help him doesn't help him. 
Yeah. Um, and he knows this. And it's Dr. it's really, you know, that's that's the tragedy is he understands what he sounds like, but he doesn't have any control over his universe. Um, the whole story of Charlie the Purple Giraffe, and by the way, I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Charlie the Purple Giraffe was acting strangely was originally the first sentence of the story. And I never came up with a really good title. And what was one thing and another, I wound up uh, wound up removing that first sentence and replacing it with a slightly different opening. And I love that first sentence so much, and I couldn't come up with a title, so I just decided to use the first sentence as the title, which results in a title that's rather long and, and awkward, but there you have it. That's, that's the title of the story. Um, but the original idea came from a Dutch comic called uh, Ruhl and Sein Bestenbuhl, uh, Ruhl and his, and his Bestiary, uh, which is a Dutch or possibly Belgian comic about a guy uh, named Ruhl who runs a vegetarian restaurant. And because he's a vegetarian and loves animals, all of his staff are actually animals, but they're pretending to be human beings. Um, and so uh, the uh, the character who kind of up and took over the story from Rule, who is nominally the main character, is uh, a goat by the name of Bucky. And Bucky's he's a maniac. Um, and there was this one particular strip where he decided that that the restaurant really needed the very best toothpicks, hand carved toothpicks. As a matter of fact, he was going to carve each toothpick from an entire tree to be sure that it was the best possible toothpick. And he turns to the audience and explains how important these things are. And I realized what the other characters would think if they saw him doing this. Yeah. And how and and how he would react to their reaction, and that was that was the the spawn of this whole story was that one that one panel or that one strip, um, in this in this Dutch comic strip, just casually uh, which is also, breaking the fourth wall, you know, just casually. Yeah, he didn't break the fourth wall a lot. Uh, that was, as far as I know, the only time he did it. Um, but that one strip was the one that made me realize the existential horror of understanding that you're a cartoon character. Definitely. That's to, that's where you get in the Lovecraft kind of pieces in the mythos and in it a little bit too. That he the heart, the more he knows about what his situation is and how helpless he is and how mind numbingly maddening it is, the more trouble it gets him. You know, thrown in prison and the more it stirs up the universe and things start going wrong. It's eventually insanity is always the way to go in the end. But so it's, so his life was so much better when he didn't know. You know. Yeah, I believe it's Poe that wrote a story uh, featuring the imp of the perverse. Um, the imp of the perverse is the thing that comes to you when you're standing uh, on a high ledge and considering jumping off. And the just knowing that the imp of the perverse is is trying to make you do this doesn't make the impulse any less genuine. Um, and I, I once I once had a button that said, "I am the imp of the perverse." Knowing this won't help you. <laughs> <laughs> Which is definitely definitely a meta meta kind of a joke. There's a novelist to antisocial or even injurious behavior. What? Now he, of course, is the authority figure in this universe, um, and he's. He's the one who is truly insane. Of the, I mean, there's really only three characters. There's there's Charlie, Jerry, and and the and the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist is the one that is truly insane, because he's doing all this mad scientist shit, like like. 
clamping jumper cables onto Charlie's horns and 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 electroshock and and experimental treatments. But in within his little society, he is the sane one. He is the one that is imposing society's mandates upon Charlie, who appears insane, but is actually the only one who knows what's really going on. And that is horrific. Absolutely. Just let me get out there and I'll show you what comedy is all about. <laughs> this situation necessitates immediate incarceration, said the doctor as he ran behind his desk. Ditto, said Jerry as he dived under a chair. The doctor pressed a button under the desk. No sound came out. Now, in this case, in this in this scene, Charlie actually does snap. Uh, Charlie actually does behave in a manner which is definitely insane and self-injurious because he is a cartoon character. And one of his first impulses is going to be to pull a big mallet out of nowhere and start bashing something. Um, so so he does he does behave in a kind of a wacky fashion because that's how he's built. He can't help it. Yes, he is who he is. But as soon as they were gone, Jerry's shoulders slumped. What are you going to do, Doctor? Well, his prognosis is not encouraging. However, he will be the recipient of the most advanced experimental treatments modern technology has to offer. From his pocket, the Doctor drew one end of a set of heavy jumper cables. Sparks flew from the sharp copper teeth as he right, touched them. Right, that is horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It really is horrific. He really is. He really is a mad scientist, and yet in his universe, he's the sane one, or at least he's representing himself as the sane one. And I think, I think Jerry accepts that. Uh, he's the only sad, other character we really see. Uh, if there were other characters, they would probably also accept him. But this, in this universe, uh, as with The Simpsons, I think the characters don't actually have memory. You know, The Simpsons every every episode every episode is an entirely new beginning for them. And I think these characters start over with each uh, with each issue of the comic book in which they exist. Um, and I suspect that this is another one of the things that Jerry can see that nobody else can, is he's aware of ongoing history in a way that his, uh, that his fellow citizens of comic, of comic book world are not. Than a projection of your own feelings of self-doubt and inconsequentiality. That's just what the rhino told you to say. <laughs> but you're right. Nobody's laughing at me. The readers aren't laughing at me. And that's the problem. I thought you didn't yeah. want them to laugh at you. So in this case, in this case, Charlie, you know, Charlie's horror is realizing that not only is he a character in somebody else's story, not only is he being watched and laughed at, but there, there's a whole universe outside of his universe which has rules that he can only barely understand, which if he doesn't take some kind of action is going to lead to the end of his universe. Right. And he, he tries to do what he can, but the people around him don't understand. Certainly, certainly by his, uh, from their perspective, he is insane and they're, they're acting, they're acting to, to protect him and, and also to protect themselves. And by doing so, they, they bring about the end of their own universe. What? That's true. You know, the irony being, though, that the success of this story would imply otherwise, that the more Charlie was uh, tortured by his realizations and, you know, shocked and uh, the more humorous and more enjoyable and entertainment was it for us as listeners and producers and folks into it. So as it is a popular story in a sense that he lives on along with both of his girlfriend and that whole community 
more yes. so than other stories and stuff because That's the fact that his misery was just that entertaining, <laughs> his awokenness was. Why does this have to do now? Wow, anything? because the story, this story, the, the story that that is you know still getting some attention even so many years after it was written. Is getting a lot of attention, and the character Charlie is getting attention. But the character Charlie that is getting the attention is not the character because because the Charlie that we are seeing is kind of the back of the Charlie mask, right? The front of the Charlie mask, the one that actually appears in a comic book for children, that character doesn't even exist. It's fictional. Okay, so there's 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 the fictional Charlie and the fictional comic book of Charlie the Purple Giraffe, which doesn't exist at all in our universe. We don't see, we don't even see it. We only see the 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 behind. It's like it's like the book that we have is the making of 2001, not the not the movie 2001. And so what we have here is a book of the unmaking of the of the actor Charlie the Purple Giraffe, and we know almost nothing about the character Charlie the Purple Giraffe, who is beloved by children in this fictional universe that doesn't actually exist. Yes, that's that is that's mind blowing because in a sense they also do have to even if they don't exist, they have to provide some sort of meaning in another dimensional sense for us to enjoy the story because they have their role in there as, you know, the, the readers or the watchers that, that we are therefore getting too. So it's you know, they're there, they're just actually not there. They're not there at all because the the readers of Charlie the Purple Giraffe are more fictional than Charlie himself. Yeah. Because because they're they're more fictional if I mean I mean, you know, being fictional is like being dead. I think you're either one or the other, but but they can be more fictional than Charlie because Charlie is a fiction in our universe, whereas the readers are made up yes. characters in a fictional universe. No, they're not married up. They're they're, they're real <laughs> characters in a fictional universe. So which is which is more fictional? Real characters in a fictional universe or a fictional character in the in the real universe? Whoa. Wow. They're, um, yeah. Um, and, yeah, so, yeah. Or the I third think, piece being what if what if the there's a fourth universe, I guess, that is watching us have this discussion right now and this whole debate. Uh, I mean, it could get layers and layers here. Oh man, yeah, yeah. This 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 is this this way lies madness. But yeah, and and you know, consider that that we can imagine hypothetical readers of the comic book Charlie the Purple Giraffe writing fanfic about about their about their favorite characters, <laughs> writing fanfic about Charlie and Jerry. So so now this fanfic is. Fictional real people – sorry, real people in a fictional universe writing fanfic about fictional people in the real universe. But the fanfic is in fact fictional fiction. Uh, at least it's theoretically fictional fiction because we're only thinking about it. Nobody's actually written it. But if somebody in this universe writes fanfic about Charlie, then that's only first level. That's just plain old ordinary fanfic. There's nothing meta about it. Unless the person who writes the fanfic is themselves fictional. Somebody who listens to this podcast, podcast about the story, somebody who listens to the podcast could write a story about somebody in the universe of the, uh, of the comic book. So, so, so in the universe that, of, of real people that read the comic book Charlie the Purple Giraffe could write a story about one of those people writing fanfic about Charlie. The, there, there is no end to how many levels deep you can go, and this is why uh, one of my favorite writers uh, is uh, Stanislav Lem, mm, uh, yeah. Polish Polish science fiction writer from the fifties. Um, he wrote a lot of stuff that was very meta, involving time travel and and characters popping in and out of of stories. Um, and and I mean, the Thousand and One Nights is 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 only a couple levels deep by comparison with some of the really deep stories that Lem wrote. 
It's awesome. Did you feel when you finished this story, was it one of those, uh, sometimes, you know, writers have a hard time wrapping up a story, but did you feel like, bam, that was it, clean cut, I nailed it, happy about it? Or- oh, man, when I came to the end of this one and I realized, yeah. I, I realized that was where it ended, that was almost as much of a gut punch for me as uh, as I suspect it is for some readers, because I I came to the end of it and I wrote that very last line. And I'm trying to remember where I was when I finished that. That might have been one. That might have been one of those ones where I turned to the. I, I was in a. I was in a group writing situation, and I turned to the person writing. And I said, "Here, read this. Is that? Can I just stop it there?" And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, I think you can. Wow. So it. It. I didn't expect it to end so abruptly, but that was where it had to end. If they all go away and don't come back, then the gap will just go on and on." and will never exist again. It'll be the end of the world, Jerry. Squashed flat in the dark, forever. Charlie's eyes were desperate, sincere, pleading. You got to get me out of here. I'll joke, I'll pratfall, I'll do anything to keep the readers coming back, to keep us all alive. Please. Jerry closed his eyes, unable to bear his friend's gaze. There are no readers, Charlie. In the end, he was right. Yeah, and I was looking for a while there for a good TV turning off Yikes. kind of sound because I couldn't really get a you know folding of a newspaper thing. But I like the idea of that finality of like what you were mentioning about there are no readers. Bam, TV's turned off, dark screen. Yeah. I, you know, I literally got chills listening to that ending. <laughs> yeah, I use that. I've got this like uh, this music that I use. It's got this uh, spiky alien kind of sound to it. And it was so in contrast to all the fun, like, you know, 50s kind of violins and mm-hmm. nah, 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 that it, yeah. it really stuck out as like, oh, wow, the ending is all coming together yeah. here. Did you use a lot of um, actual like like Warner Brothers cartoon music yeah, or was it more? It. Yeah, tons of it. Yeah. yeah. There's a uh, there's a CD called the Carl Stalling Project. That's where I got um, a lot of it from. Actually, you nailed it. Yeah, yeah. that is a fabulous, fabulous record. And um, it was listening to that CD. I realized that it wasn't as as amazing as that music is. I realized that it wasn't Carl Stalling who was the real genius. It was uh, it was the composer, um, a guy by the name of. Raymond Scott. Um, and I've since picked up a number of records of uh, Raymond Scott's work. He was, I mean, basically it's jazz. And like um, there's there's like Raymond Scott, that, that cartoon music, and there's uh, Linus and Lucy, uh, all that, all that, uh, all that uh, Peanuts music, uh, which was composed by, by some other, some of some other jazz great. And those are like the only two kinds of jazz I really like. I never really fell in love with jazz, but those particular pieces are just part of my childhood. And so I accept them. Yeah. Scott's work, it says, had a cartoon sensibility and brought visual images to mind, elements which Stalling needed in first compositions. That's so cool and poignant here in 2018 of trying to find music that brings visual images to mind in an audio podcast. Whenever you hear a certain type of vibe and sound, it's you recognize it as sitting in the dinner room and the wife just made something great. Dad just came home from work. It's kind of peaceful. You know, that kind of era is immediately put into your brain. Yeah. And there are certain particular uh, melodies which 
those of us who grew up on on these cartoons, which of course they played from the fifties up until the eighties or nineties, you know, so generations of kids grew up on this on this one particular fairly small set of cartoons, and you can hear certain phrases like da 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 you know, and that immediately brings a certain image to mind. Um, there's, uh, there are particular things, and this is all covered in the uh, liner notes of the Carl Stalling project. Uh, there was a piece called A Piece of Coffee and a Cup of Pie, which symbolizes hunger. Uh, I can't quote it for you at the moment, but I'm sure you would recognize it if you heard it. Do you remember a specific time, could have been when you were a kid watching those cartoons or a little bit later, when you first came to terms with the existential reality of nature and of life and the universe, whenever it dawned on you that we might be alone, we don't know what's going on, that we're insignificant and pointless, and whenever you first had a little glimmer of existential despair? I think the, my first glimmer of existential despair was probably when my dad taught me about the concept of infinity. Um, that that you talk about. I mean, my dad my dad is a PhD uh, physicist, um, and later later in his life a professor of computer science. And so when I was like a little kid, like like eight, um, he already taught me about uh, about the um, Cantor's concept of multiple infinities. Yeah. Uh, the idea that the the counting numbers one two three four five those go all the way up to infinity, and yet imagine the rational numbers one one and a quarter one and a half one and three eighths. Those also, there's an infinite number of them, and yet there are more of them. But I mean, obviously, there's more of them because there's an infinite number of fractions between one and two. So obviously, there must be an infinite number of uh, and infinitely more fractional numbers than there are of whole numbers. And yet they're both infinite because you can map them one for one. Hmm. Um but so so there's there's Aleph one, which is the number of whole numbers, and Aleph two, which is the number of of rational numbers uh, or fractions. Um, so they're both infinite, and yet somehow or other one's more infinite than the other. And then there are further levels of infinity beyond that. And that's when I started to realize that you know, I mean, some people get freaked out by the number of stars in the sky. The number of stars in the sky is is only a patch uh -huh. on infinity. Uh, starting to think about what is a million really. Uh, my dad actually had this is back in the days when uh, when computers were programmed with punch cards, uh -huh. and so every computer lab had gallons and gallons and gallons of those little rectangular pieces of cardboard that were punched out of the punch cards. Mm, yeah. And so dad had a jar with about like two gallons of these things and he would pour it out and say, this is about a million. Huh. You know, this, this, and, and he was, he was very good at, at estimating and he taught me the skill of estimating of, of, you know, I, you know, how many jelly beans are there in this jar? Um, how long would it take you to get to the moon by bicycle? And these are things that, they seem like completely wacky and, and inaccessible. But if you actually think about it, if you just remember a few basic facts about the world, you can totally estimate how long it would take to get to the moon by bicycle just out of the things that you already know in your own head. Hmm. And so and so that concept of, OK, if this is a million, this this you know gallon of little tiny pieces of cardboard, if this is a million things, then imagine, you know, imagine a million people. You know, what would a million people look like if you put them all, you know, packed in tightly in a in a large stadium? Um, and then a million is nothing by comparison to the number of stars in the sky, which is as nothing by comparison to the number of hydrogen atoms in the universe, which is as nothing by comparison with the number of empty cubic centimeters in the universe. And so when you think about all of these different infinities, imagining where do we fit in, that's enough to make you feel small, you know? 
Yeah, but you know what I love about your answer was the childlike glee whenever you started talking about it. There, uh, existential dread. Dread was the wrong word. Like you basically pulled from this uh, an excitement about the opportunity to learn and to find new things. That, that, that smallness is a good thing because that means there's a lot more out there to understand and to explore. And I it would hardly call it dread uh, from your perspective. Yeah. It's existential excitement. Well, and although... Although Charlie's story is a horror story, I am not horrified by the universe. I think Lovecraft really was horrified by the great depths of time and space that he faced. And I'm not, I'm not horrified. I'm excited by these things. Yeah. Well, wait till one of them's got the squid head and all that stuff. It might, <laughs> but even that would be kind of fascinating. Yeah. The other thing I was going to ask you too, um, if you were to find out uh, in a jarring all of a sudden way that there have always been readers and laughers, much like charlie that's that's our reality you know we don't know much more than that but we're in the same boat would that be more or less uh terrifying to you know that there have been for a while and then there aren't anymore and we're alone now like which of those scenarios to you seems more unsettling wow it would be more unsettling to find out that they'd gone away because it raises the question of what happened to them and what does this mean for us Mm. I mean, one thing that never happens in horror fiction is like people find out that there are like suppose you're reading a book where um, where people discover that vampires are real. Okay, Uh And furthermore, let us let us just suppose that this is a universe in which vampires are real and vampires can be stopped by the cross. Like you touch a vampire with the cross and and they burn. Uh Okay, if I found myself in that situation the thing that would be at the top of my mind is, okay, so if vampires are affected by the cross, does this imply that like like Jesus actually existed and really was the son of God? Does this imply that God really indif- indisputably exists? Mm. Because that's that's one of those big questions. Right? You know, why – I mean the big question is why are we, why are we born only to suffer and die? Mm-hmm. And religion is one of the things that tries to answer those questions. So if we have vampires that are really affected by like holy water and crosses, then that's powerful evidence that, that Christianity had it right, uh, which is evidence that, that doesn't exist in the physical world that I've seen. So an awful lot of horror fiction leads – if I found myself in that situation, I would be more – intrigued by the questions of what it implies about the nature of reality than about the immediate threat of we're being chased. Well, once we let's assume we got away from the vampire. Okay. So then once you stop and catch your breath, you you'd stop and you think, whoa. So so this implies all sorts of things that we never knew we had proof for. And now look, it's real. And and this is just how I think Uh, there's this is independent of the many philosophical questions that are raised by Charlie. Yeah, and vampires. Yeah. My friends and I have a common debate about uh, the just, which would be more shattering to the um, nature of man, knowing that there are extraterrestrial beings somewhere in the universe that we're not alone, or knowing with definitive proof that there are ghosts. And I'm like one of the few that thinks ghosts is a big deal, even though I love aliens. I think aliens are badass, but ghosts imply much of what you just said that there's something beyond this life. There's an afterlife. There's a system and an order that uh, surrounds us that could entail a Jesus Christ 
or of some sort of set of rules that we're supposed to be enacting right now. And as badass as alien civilizations would be, there, that means that there's alien ghosts, too, possibly. Yeah, not to mention the fact that, that ghosts are literally closer to home. That, <laughs> that, that ghosts, you know, the, the discovering the existence of ghosts would have more impact on one's everyday life than definitively discovering the existence of aliens. Uh, because if everything we know about the universe, you know, the speed of light being an, an, uh, an unbreakable rule, if everything we know of the universe is true and there are aliens, then those aliens are probably not going to have big impact on us because we wouldn't be able to send a message to them and get anything back unless – and, you know, minimum like three years and probably a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas ghosts, you know, there could be one standing next to you right now. Yeah. So that that would be uh, that would be a big question, and would definitely cause me to rethink really just about everything, just about all of the decisions that I've made in my life. Yeah, yeah, and and your relationships with the people that you know, and even if aliens, worst case scenario, were to come to Earth and annihilate us, I think the ghost principle stands higher still because that that implies there's something after that annihilation for us, you know. Mm-hmm. So even at that case, it's like, well, what's going to happen once we're slaughtered by the aliens? And what do we look like? And what uh, abilities do we have? And where, what realm do we live in? And is is there science and all that kind of fun stuff? Yeah, it, it beats being eaten by aliens for food, you know, in the time being. But well, you know, you get eaten by aliens. At least it's over quickly. But if there are ghosts, that means that you know you could be stuck for you'd be could be stuck on this planet for eternity. Yep, unless there's a Pac-Man walking around, you know, just, waka, 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 yeah, waka. he's the ghost worst enemy. Well, Dave, it's been awesome talking to you. I could do this all day. Uh, I really appreciate it. I can't remember if you said, are you going to WorldCon later on this year? I think August. Yes, I'll be at the WorldCon in San Jose. Um, and and my third book, uh, Arabella, the Traitor of Mars, which is the conclusion of the Arabella of Mars trilogy, comes out on July 31st this year. It's coming up. And uh, I did get that submission from the other day, and uh, I'm loving it so far. I didn't get a chance to finish it, but uh, just a little bit of a spoiler for future Travelcast listeners out there. You're going to be probably hearing this man on the cast coming up in September, October, November at some point with a, a story that you haven't heard so far that's really, really out there and fun. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for catching up, and we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Five minutes. A transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.